Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. It's the beauty that hurts you most, son. Not the ugly. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. My name is David Pizarro from Cornell University. Tamler, the great philosopher Immanuel Kant, didn't write his critiques until his 50s. Today, my friend, August 20th of the year of our Lord 2020, you turn 50. What philosophy do we have in store for the next decade? Are you going to go back to zombies? (laughs) Yes, I started with zombies. I'm going to end with zombies. (laughs) Also, yeah. I have a transcendentalist theory kind of cooking up of ethics. Could you toss in some like racist anthropology in there? You know, like a 50-year-old 50, 50 white man would. <laughs> I feel like all my, all my work has a little racist anthropology <laughs> already, you know? I mean, it's, it's legacy, right? It's like we, we, we come from a tradition. <laughs> right. we're, we're grandfathered in. You have, we're like Joe Biden. It's like you can't. <laughs> hold us to the same standards as oh man so the other thing i was going to tell you is this morning i um got an annoying tweet from somebody who was mocking us um for our live stream my live stream failure um with paul bloom where i couldn't get the audio right and he called us boomers and i my first reaction was like fuck you i'm a gen xer yeah but then i thought wait you're you're <laughs> what are you i'm you're... I'm totally Gen X. I'm like 100% Gen X. I'm like classic That's right. Gen I'm X. at the cutoff. I'm at the cutoff. I just w- really wanted to know what the 70s were like. That was my other question. Like I was just kind of <laughs> First of all, you were born in like 1970. You're, you're like five years younger, but you pretend <laughs> that you're... I know. There's something about the milestone of 50 that makes me feel like even younger than normal. Like... <laughs> I'll tell you that um, the real aging for me came in like late 30s to early 40s like i looked like a kid until my late 30s and then um and then it started to look more like how other people look that progressed for a few years and then now i feel it's it's pretty much the same you know it's not a big deal yeah i feel the exact same way there was some there was some part of my in my i was so proud you know all through my 20s to get carded at the liquor store and at some point in my mid-30s just you know it's just it's dwindles and uh and then and people start guessing your actual age rather than (laughs) but you actually you actually i think look better than than you did 10 years ago yeah that was uh uh, it was also like probably the height of just drinking and not eating well and not exercising enough and i got in shape it was actually because I turned 40, then a couple of years later, I went to the doctor and they're like, yeah, I thought it was going to deliver, but there was heart. And so I got into shape and so the drinking hasn't necessarily slowed down as much, but maybe the binge drinking. 
<laughs> but, but yeah, no, I feel better than I did probably seven or eight or nine years ago. And, and so that part of it is not bad at all. That's good because um, my my potential replacements for you are also getting old. Yeah. And that's uh, so not really too- who, who do you have now? I know, Paul, you would lo- you would replace me right now, like during this opening segment with Paul Bloom. But who else? Um, I've, I try all the time to usurp. Yeah. <laughs> to usurp. Uh, you know, I have a short list. Uh, uh, Jesse Single comes to mind. He has a lot of <laughs> Patreon followers. <laughs> I know. We really, I think we've fucked up, at least financially. Like we really <laughs> fucked up by alienating the... A certain uh, IDW. We uh, podcasts that are one trick ponies um, that that harp on the same topic develop a more radical fan base, no matter what that topic is. And so, I think we we need to do now for the next decade of your life is be all Borges all the time. Yeah, it's like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. Or we just go the other way and just be like, you know what? Mea culpa. <laughs> Marxist critical theory is taking over every university. It's not STEM. It's not. It's just, it's all critical theorists now. No engineering. I'm scared for my job. <laughs> I worry. So I should say in the second part of this episode, we are going to be talking, which will be the bulk of the episode. We're going to be talking about the great uh, brothers Karamazov, which is, well, one section of the book. Um uh, the part on the Grand Inquisitor and and what's the name of that other section? Uh, the, the Rebellion. Rebellion. It's it's the most, yeah, it is the most famous part of the Brothers Karamazov. But this is a good standalone episode. So even if you haven't read it or even if you haven't read it in a long time, I think you should still get a lot out of it. It's, you know, and we had what I thought was one of our best conversations of all time. Like I edited it recently and I thought this belongs on Mount Rushmore VBW. That makes me excited because I haven't listened to the edited version yet, which is always better <laughs> than the original version. Um, but yeah, we have that was super fun. Um, and so, so we'll we'll come back with that. Are there any last words that you have in case we lose you within the next uh, two weeks? <laughs> well, I have one thing to say about my birthday that made you know a little a pill easier to swallow. Turning fifty was I got from my friend who works out in L.A. Ed Gazalian. Um, he wrote for The Walking Dead for a while, now writes for a Walking Dead spinoff. And he sent me a video of Weebay, Hassan Johnson, the actor from The Wire, wishing me a happy birthday. Uh, Get the fuck out. I, I, yeah, I swear. I gotta, I'll show it to you afterwards. It was awesome. And to, he gave a shout out to Eliza. Eliza was very excited to give a shout out to Jen and also to Very Bad Wizards. The f- oh, that, oh, you got you to gotta send that to me. Oh, well, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Quick shout outs to your wife, Jen, daughter, Eliza, and... The Philosophy Podcast, Very Bad Wizards. I, I know y'all doing y'all thing. Keep rising to the top. And I'm a, <laughs> yeah, I was a huge WeeBay fan. So that was... I love WeeBay. Um, I recently rewatched The Wire. WeeBay makes it through most of The Wire, right? I think he makes it through all of it, although he goes to prison for life at the end of the first season. Right, that's right, that's right. I one of my favorite scenes in all the wire actually is Weebay eating his like whatever meal whatever sandwich he's <laughs> yeah. eating and just copping to murders because why not <laughs> right he's already going for life so he's like yeah I did that yeah. one uh, well great happy birthday uh, I'll speak on behalf of all of our listeners um, we wouldn't want you any any other way other than your old cantankerous self and uh, thank you for making me look and feel young 
<laughs> that's, that's, that's what I'm here for is to make other people <laughs> feel relatively younger, even people who are like close to my age. Uh, yeah, no, it's not that bad. And plus, you know, those U curves, you know? Yeah, where, your happiness should be going up. It should actually. be, yeah. Uh, and, I'm, and I feel young at heart. So if any of our older listeners have any advice for how to live a happy 50s. Um. <laughs> Sean Nichols, he seems like he's, uh, he's a happy guy these days, right? He's he's very happy. I mean, he looks like he's sixty five, but he's very happy. Yeah, he's, no, he looks. <laughs> but he's really only in his early sixties, right? Uh, I don't even think that. No, no I know. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> okay. He won't listen to this, so <laughs> he will not listen to this at all. We can uh, say all right. Well, we had we had uh, s- some potential opening topics to discuss, but the brothers Karamazov actually takes it's like a very long discussion, so um, we should move straight to it right yeah let's get to it we'll be right back this episode of very bad wizards is brought to you in part by BetterHelp. we'd like to thank BetterHelp for their continued support and sponsorship of this podcast no i was raised in a community in which mental health was stigmatized it wasn't something that you talked about it wasn't something you admitted it was something that if it happened in your family you were ashamed of and so you can imagine that this led to increased tragedies. There are some very, very sad outcomes to um, to many families uh, that I knew because people were just unwilling to admit, accept, or seek help for some serious mental illnesses. I'm glad that that sort of stigma has changed. I view it as sort of a personal goal with my students to help normalize the fact that all of us go through things, whether it's the most mild sort of unhappiness to the most severe um, psychotic episodes. There is help for us now, and there's help that's readily available. And BetterHelp is a service that is there for you, even if you can't get out of your home or even if you can't reach out to a family member. BetterHelp has licensed professional therapists who are there for you if you need them. It's uh, giving you an ability to connect with a professional therapist in a safe and private online environment. Within 24 hours, you can be communicating to one of these people. Um, You can send a a message to your counselor at any time and get timely and thoughtful responses back. Importantly, BetterHelp is committed to finding the right therapeutic match for you. So once you let them know what your issues are, they will try to match you as best they can with an expert in that area. But you can always feel free to change counselors if you need. It's also more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and they even offer financial aid. It's available to clients worldwide across all 50 states. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp lately that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. There are people who can help you with things like depression and anxiety or grief. A lot of grief going on right now, unfortunately, with the amount of people who are sick, falling ill, and dying. Um, It's convenient. It's professional. It's affordable. Anything you share is confidential. They're absolutely 100% professionals. If you have any questions about how this has worked out for other people, you can go ahead and check the testimonials that they post daily on their site. And if you're interested in getting in touch with BetterHelp and and seeking some change, seeking some help, um, taking action in your own life, as a listener of Very Bad Wizards, you'll get 10% off your first month if you visit betterhelp.com slash verybadwizards. So join over 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health and visit, again, betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash very bad bad wizards we'd like to thank better help for sponsoring this episode of very bad wizards 
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time on the podcast where we like to give our sincere thanks to all the people who get in touch with us in all the different ways that you do. Um, you can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. We've gotten recently you know, just a ton of really nice emails, just yeah. either thanking us, saying something about our episodes, sometimes disagreeing. But if you want to join the conversation on our subreddit, the lively conversation, and often funny conversations people are posting um, very bad wizards related but only sometimes distantly related material but i don't know it's good it's uh it's very bad wizards the is the subreddit you can follow us on instagram you can like us on facebook and you can tweet to us at tamler at peas at very bad wizards we always appreciate a rating on apple podcasts subscribers on and downloading on spotify and whatever app that, that, that you do. So thank you, everybody. We really appreciate this great community that has built around this podcast. It's something that still is hard to believe, but is always gratifying to see. Absolutely. And, and I thought, um, you know, whatever, I, I, it, it's been eight years, and I never would have thought that at the eight-year mark, I would actually be more convinced that we would keep going than I was <laughs> like at the two year mark. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Me too. Yeah. Uh, if you'd like to support us in uh, more tangible ways, you can find all the ways to do that at our support page, verybadwizards.com slash VBW support, or you could just go to the support tab at the top uh, right of verybadwizards.com. We very, very much appreciate there. You'll see links to, um, if you'd like to donate to us once or in a recurring uh, fashion via PayPal, there's a link there. We very, very much appreciate that. Uh, I know a lot of you don't have access or don't want access to pra- Patreon, um, so you can you can go there. Um, but for those who do, we very much appreciate that as well. And because we have that infrastructure to reward you via Patreon, we like to do that um, because we 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 care about the fact that you've gone out of your way to to uh, make all of this possible to keep the lights on in fact my students should probably thank you because some of that patreon money has gone to to uh improve things like our audio and our our students this semester will be i think grateful (laughs) that we are not just talking into our laptop mics (laughs) so yeah so you can also go directly to patreon at patreon.com slash very bad wizards and you'll see that we have various reward tiers we recently had someone tamler email i think he emailed just me saying you know what you guys should do is watch dark i think you'd really love it (laughs) and uh i said well funny you should mention that so um i pointed him to the two episodes that we have um we have uh t-shirts that that i love and that people seem to be liking you can see that link as well to the very bad wizard store on cotton bureau Um, i really love these t-shirts just the color the design and the feel the quality of them um i i uh would if i could i would buy a shirt for everybody everyone seems to like like these they they really do they're 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 subtle they're not you know they don't look like one of those t-shirts you got at a conference five years ago yeah (laughs) so go there we we very much appreciate it uh we also have as uh you might be aware given the topic of this episode um we are doing a five-part miniseries on the brothers karamazov and we will be posting that on a service called Himalaya. And we will have more information and a link to that when it becomes available. Uh, this will be a 
$5 purchase, um, but we're making it so that our $5 and up Patreon supporters will get that, will get access to that. And yeah, this is something we're doing sort of above and beyond what we're normally doing here. Um, but we were so excited to be able to dive into that during these summer months and actually give it the discussion that it deserves. And even Tamler, after five five like hour and a half recording sessions i still feel like we're scratching the surface of that book i know i do too um we've done now four of the five of them but Mm -hmm. um i guess we will have done five by the time this releases but so far i've been happy with all of them um i maybe my favorite was the one that we're releasing for everybody right now but they've all been really good i've really liked the last couple that we've done as well so yeah um, yeah I, the, the last one it's the, the the one that we're talking about this time is like clearly the one that is of most philosophical relevance but there are other parts of that book that are just surprise like surprisingly good um in the sense at least that i didn't remember how good they were and yeah. and i think overlooked by people who might just read read um the the famous quote-unquote sections the grand so, inquisitor yeah right. no and so if you haven't read it or if you haven't read it in a long time pick it up it is uh it's such a good read and it goes once you get into it which doesn't take long it goes pretty quickly and it's very funny and it's very moving and it's deep it is as deep as it gets it's it really it really is last thing i'll say before i end this thank you is um you guys if you have any suggestions about the sorts of stuff you'd want to see in the patreon rewards feel free to, to email us. We're always looking uh, for, for those suggestions because we like to do the things that you want to hear. And so, so yeah, thank you to all of our community for all of your support. Yes, thank you. Welcome to the second episode of the Very Bad Wizards book club, I guess, if we're going to call it that, on the Brothers Karamazov. This is a second of five episode series. Um, and today we're going to talk about part two, which, I don't know, it's kind of the heart of the novel, I would say. And I, I, am, I despair at how we're going to talk about this in one episode. I know this is you could you could do a whole five part series on just this, but but we can't. So we'll do it. We'll do our best. So I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. And I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. So I'm just going to read a quick summary of this part. Then we'll just dive into it and go through it. And this won't be hard to find themes to talk about because they are the grandest themes and really all of Western thought. It's in some ways Alyosha's part because he's present in virtually every scene with the with maybe one or two exceptions, um, even if he's more of a passive participant than an active one in those scenes. So it starts in book four, which is called, in this translation, Strains. Alyosha is with Elder Zosima, who tells him to go out, deal with his family problems to the best of his ability, and to stay his non-judgmental, loving self. Uh, And he also promises Alyosha that he'll be alive when he gets back. So Alyosha goes out. First, he goes to his father, who is in a more pensive, I don't know, subdued mood. But he tells Alyosha that he wants to live as long as possible and he needs money. He can't give uh, Dimitri any money because he needs that money to be able to have sex with younger chicks, even when he's old and disgusting. Like he thinks now he can get them with, you know, with a modest price. But when he's older, he's going to really need to pay for that. 
So then Alyosha goes outside and gets he gets caught up in a very uneven rock fight between five schoolboys and one schoolboy. And then Alyosha defends the single boy and he gets bitten on the finger for his troubles by that boy. Later, we find out that this boy has a grudge against the Karamazovs because his father was humiliated by Dmitri in front of his son. And so that will explain the bite. So then Alyosha goes to visit Katrina Ivanovna, who is staying with Lise and Madame Koklakov. Koklakov? Your guess is as good as mine. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and, and happens to run into Ivan, who's also there talking very intently with Katrina Ivanovna. Katrina Ivanovna says to Alyosha she's made a big decision. She will never leave Dmitri, no matter what he does or how badly he treats her. Alyosha then tries a misguided attempt at matchmaking between Ivan and Katrina Ivanovna, and that doesn't go well, and everyone goes into hysterics. And that is really what this uh, part is mostly about. The word strains is, uh, uh, I read, an imperfect translation of a Russian word that means rend or tear or rupture. I was wondering, it is, it's a weird choice of word, and... and like given that this is a good translation i could only imagine that they were just like wow yeah if we have to pick one word <laughs> I, I think i get it like rend i think is the best word but it wouldn't make sense as the title of a book because i don't think you know that the word rend really makes sense if only in context i think like rending your your uh whatever in any case, uh, Alyosha then goes to visit the captain that Dmitri humiliated in front of his son, and he has 200 rubles that Katrina Ivanova offered for reparations, I guess. And he almost gets the captain to accept the money, but the captain in the end thinks it would be too humiliating, even though he could use the money because he leaves in this very pitiful uh, lodgings with his very poor family. But Alyosha's convinced that he'll accept the next day. Alyosha goes back to Madame Koklakov and gets engaged to Lise in a very sweet scene between them that I think I'd like to talk about. It's one of the sweeter scenes in what we've read so far. Then Alyosha meets uh, Ivan, his brother, at an inn, and they have one of the greatest and most famous conversations in Western literature and philosophy, really. Highlights include the most vivid description of the problem of evil that I've ever come across and a dramatic encounter between Jesus Christ and a Spanish inquisitor about the cost of existential freedom and the seductive power of totalitarianism. After that, Ivan goes back to his father's, meets Smerdyakov, who seems to confess that he's part of some elaborate plot, or at least he knows about some elaborate plot to kill Fyodor Pavlovich. Ivan goes to Moscow and Alyosha goes back to hear the dying words of the elder Zosima, which are in some sense, if not an answer, a, maybe a counterpoint to Ivan's rebellion and the description of the Grand Inquisitor. So that's my brief summary. Again, I don't know how we can talk about this all in one episode, but, we're, <laughs> but we can't waste time. So, so yeah, did I miss anything? I don't think so. I think you hit all you hit all the points. You you didn't talk about the description of weird old father Farapont, who is is set up as as some kind of uh, ascetic monk who's an enemy of Father Zosima, but we don't hear from him again, at least in this part of the book. Yeah, yeah, that is a very strange scene, and the the talking of the little devils 
that he sees. Yeah, he's he's like sort of like widely renowned as uh, an ascetic, and and he lives in the forest, and he doesn't talk to any of the locals. But somebody from another place comes to talk to him, like another monk, I think, and he opens up to him, and he tells them. He tells him about how the Holy Spirit visits him, and sometimes it's in the form of a dove, but sometimes it's another bird, and how really wicked and evil all of the the elders and the and the monks are who live in the monastery, and that they have devils crawling all over them, and they can't even see them, and uh, it really seems like he's eaten some mushrooms from the forest, as he as he said, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's having a bad trip, but the. <laughs> But it's also, I think, maybe thematically related to what will come later. So he has a very literal sort of understanding of what it means to have faith. Like you literally see devils and spirit. You, It's like you're hallucinating. Whereas Zosima and, and Alyosha, I think, have a much more... I don't know, expansive definition or less literal definition of how you understand your faith. The, both both less literal and just more balanced, I guess, like less extreme. Yeah, and more sort of I would I would almost say pantheistic because it's loving like every part of the world. Uh, against all logic. This is one of the themes that I definitely want to talk about because the the love that is constantly being discussed in this book, starting with the Katrina's decision that that even though Dimitri is rejecting her for Grushenka, she's decided that she will always love him and basically saying that she's going to stalk him for the rest of his days. And she'll, <laughs> she'll like prostrate <laughs> herself before him yeah. and suffer all yeah. the humiliations. And and she seems to get some like sort of power over presenting herself as this victim. In fact, yeah. she's portrayed as having a fairly dominant personality, so much so that that Alyosha says that she would be a better match for Ivan. And we and we understand that Ivan and Katarina do have feelings for each other, or that Ivan has feelings for, her. or at least that Ivan yeah. has feelings. She's portrayed as as something of a dominant personality, and it seems like here she's using her very strong personality to to like give this long speech about how she will she will suffer she for her love of Dimitri. It's pretty clear that she doesn't actually love. Like that's not. So this seems to be a perverted sense of that more pantheistic or transcendent kind of love that Zosima and I think Alyosha stand for, though, right? Because I think it's the wrong kind of love. Yeah, yeah I think it, this is the love that is selfish. It's a it's a selfish move on her part. Exactly. And she, it's it's a love with an agenda, and yeah. I, I think what Zosima talks about is a kind of love with no agenda. You're not trying to prove anything to anybody. You're, it's not a power play, as it seems to be, like you point out with Katrina Ivanova. It is. It's just this. I mean, what it is is actually a little hard to pin down. That's part of the point. And, there's, and there really are different kinds of loves throughout, especially this section, different kinds of love, I should say. Like the, the constant brotherly love. Ivan talks about how he doesn't think he loved Alyosha when they were kids. He's like, I, I never really felt love for you, but now I do. I love you. And you kind of believe that everyone loves Alyosha, but, but Alyosha loving everybody else 
feels like a real different kind of love, like the love that you're talking about. Yeah. By the way, there's a lot of guy-guy kissing. I guess that's a lot of guy, cultural guy difference. Kissing. Um, <laughs> well, there's two instances of guy-guy kissing, one between Jesus and the Inquisitor and then between Alyosha and Ivan. And Ivan. Yeah. Um, so it's like also kind of incest. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so one thing that's interesting in the first part when he's with the elder Zosima and Father Paisy and that other weird monk, they, in their sort of words to him as he leaves, they both tell him not to be proud and not to hate all of those who reject you, disgrace you, revile you, and slander you. And both of them say, don't hate atheists, right? Don't hate materialists. Right. Don't hate, you know, because they are, even though this is where the science of the world is progressing, Father Paisy says, they have, but they have examined parts and missed the whole. And their blindness is even worthy of wonder. The whole stands before their eyes, even in the movements of the souls of those same all-destroying atheists. It lives like the spirit and it moves. So you can even find Christ and love in the atheists who reject him and God and all of it. And, you know, only believe in a material world. I believe at some point, though, I can't find it. He even says, you know, these are the people who have nobody else, like nobody else prays for them. So you must pray for them, um, right? You must love them because because they're, they're, yeah. And like in the extreme case, maybe with Ivan, they themselves might be incapable of love, which they equate with hell. Like to be incapable of love is to be in hell. Um, and in fact, Zosima at the end says, right, like that it is worse than you will beg for the flames. If you are, uh, because at least that would distract you from missing out on love and the opportunity to love. Yeah, when he's talking about the the parable of Lazarus in, in hell, reaching, uh, just begging for some water to wet his tongue. Throughout this is uh, this this whole section is replete with New Testament allusions. Um, it's very, very Jesus-y. What is it like for you reading this? So the last time you read it, were, did you were you still a believer? You know, I was, and this this is going to sound dramatic, but I don't think it is because I think I've known this for quite some time. The discussion that Ivan and Alyosha have in the section called Rebellion before the Grand Inquisitor, mm -hmm. I think, is what made me lose my faith. Wow! Like, I, if I if I had to point to a singular because right, there's always multiple things, but but if I had to point to a singular, at least intellectual source of of me stopping believing God, it, it is this because this is the the problem of evil so so well put, yeah. That that I, you even read the conflict, you know. Apparently, Dostoevsky really was an Orthodox Russian Orthodox Christian, but I I remember reading this the first time around and thinking. Ivan won. Like he's made, he made Ivan win this one. He gave the best possible defense of the atheist position, the atheist, and not only sort of from a logical perspective, but almost from a moral perspective. It is moral because, in fact, it's not even explicitly atheist because Ivan says, fine, I'll believe in God. I just disagree with this world. I reject it. I don't want that. I return I the it. ticket. I don't want That's it right. because, uh, and we'll get into that in some detail. And I think this is why, you know, the book starts out with Fa Father Pacey saying that, that, you know, there is a kind of beauty even in those 
atheists. Those who renounce Christianity and rebel against it are in their essence of the same image of the same Christ. I think Dostoevsky wanted to give the best possible case for being an atheist, like moral case and intellectual case for being an atheist and, and really does it in a very, in such a vivid way that you can't help but feel it. It's interesting because I probably read this the first time when I was in my I don't know, the closest I've ever been to like a new atheist, like kind of acerbic or atheist, contemptuous atheist. Have And now I'm probably at my most like open to some sort of spiritual, I don't know, weird interaction. It's probably the drugs. It's the edibles, but whatever. (laughs) And I, you know, when I read part three, the last section uh, where Zosima is describing it, even though I think there are some problems with it, there are times where I felt like, wait, I, is, am I feeling this on some other level? You know, like, am I am I connecting to this? This and and partly I think it's because it's it's not that dependent on a Christian interpretation of God. I think that's a good point. That, I think that's an important point to make because I think that the 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 love that Alyosha and Father Zosima are adhering to or like trying to put out into the world, I don't think depends on, as you said, it doesn't, you know, certainly the target's faith should not alter whether or not you love them. But I think that this is a view that is, even if it's built on the teachings of Christ, they don't focus a whole lot on uh, on that stuff, they focus more on the universal love. Yeah, and you know, there's a point. What do you? What did you think about? Well, okay, so Alyosha and Ivan are always pit against each other, and it seems you know Alyosha is the believer, Ivan's the doubter. But it's not really that clear, right? Like Dostoevsky, I think, goes out of his way to show that these are young men who are still trying to figure things out. And at some point, Alyosha, when he's talking to Lee's, he says, "Look, maybe I don't even believe in God." Yeah, and he's surprised that he says that. Yeah, but it came from somewhere. And I think that this is, these are two young men, you know, one of them is 23, the other one's what, 18 or right. something like, and they're trying to figure, figure this out. And I think they're both taking strong stances, but you, but in my head, this is Dostoevsky's two, he's battling it out in his own head with the dialogue between these two. Absolutely. And also, I think he makes them that young for a purpose and and draws attention to how young they are, because Alyosha says that about Ivan. I think this is probably a conflict that has been with him since his youth. And I think that that's why he's able to give such a sympathetic or at least forceful presentation of the Ivan view is because he feels that in him as well. And, you know, I have to say I was reminded... Uh, you know, on the Alyosha Zosima side of a more kind of Eastern, maybe Buddhist kind of all-encompassing compassion and love that really isn't dependent on belief in a way that I associate with Christianity. And I wonder if Eastern Orthodox, well, yeah, I don't know. Like, I think there's some, uh, we've talked about this on the podcast before, there's some versions of Christianity that where belief is pretty much everything. And this doesn't seem like that kind of version, like the fact that Alyosha could kind of curiously note he's not even sure that he believes in God, but it almost doesn't matter because of how he acts. I think it's it's an interesting tension because they, they are talking about the New Testament uh, left and right. 
they are like referring to Jesus and they are, you know, like reciting portions of texts. But I, I think you're right. And there is actually a part, this is, um, I, I was curious what you'd think. This is on page 319 of our of our manuscript at the very bottom when Zosima is talking about sort of the source of of his love and he's talking about his brother who was sick from consumption, tuberculosis, and it was a very bad case. But right before he died, he seemed to be very, very happy and was talking about love. And that's an interesting thing to talk about uh, in and of itself. But at the bottom, he says, all is like an ocean, I say to you, tormented by universal love, you too would then start praying to the birds as if in a sort of ecstasy. He's describing, he sa- and above that he says, My young brother asked forgiveness of the birds. It seems senseless, yet it is right, for all is like an ocean. All flows and connects. Touch it in one place and it echoes at the other end of the world. It struck me that this is both what you're saying about a more Eastern kind of like this universalist, uh, we are all one concept, but also that Freud might have read this and used it to describe the oceanic feeling that he refers to in, in the book that we discussed, um, Civilization and Its Discontents, uh, that we did on our podcast. Uh, this is very much the oceanic feeling. Yeah, and it's one that you see repeatedly in its perverted form, maybe in, in a perverted and just warped form in The Father. and But then you see it in... Zosima, you see it in Alyosha, at least it's what Alyosha is striving for, and in a lot of the people in that last book where Zosima is talking about his life and the people he's encountered. And it seems like at a certain point, often when they're close to death, they start to realize that there is this opportunity that we have while we live to embrace everything in all its contradictions to embrace and to and even Ivan says like the sticky leaves the sticky spring leaves and the blue sky it's like that this is something beautiful to acknowledge and not to not just at least until until you're 30 for Ivan 30 yeah which I want to talk about it's sort of it's really interesting and 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 but it's this idea that really there is that that to love the world you have to love the whole world and every little part of it, including the birds and... You will per- perceive the mystery. Yeah, you'll perceive the mystery and and you'll do it knowingly in spite of all the things there are to hate about the world, the suffering of children. All right, we, we're jumping into like a lot of the big stuff. Yeah. Should, we go, should we go through the, the first part, which is more plot heavy, and then go to talk about the Grand Inquisitor and the Rebellion chapter, which are equally just <laughs> yeah. mind-blowing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. Because I think there are some interesting parts in that first, in that first Alyosha sort of jumping around, yeah. running, <laughs> running these errands with like this sense of of um, <laughs> a real sense of duty. Yeah, <laughs> and not really getting much done. In no, know, no. <laughs> at least in this part, right? Like he he's not successful in any of the missions that he carries out, right? Right. He was really like trying to find Dimitri, right. who fails poorly in that. That was his central task. But then he was also trying to give the captain the money, and in the end, the captain turned down the money. He was trying to get Ivan and Katrina Ivanova to be together, and which would free Dimitri, and, and that didn't go well at all. Yeah, he did get, he did get engaged, so that's nice. Yeah, Our, and I didn't understand if we were to believe that this was like a, 
like an engaged to be engaged sort of thing, like because it's not going to happen for another few years. And like Lisa's mom seemed to think that it was not nice of him to be making these plans. Yeah, I mean, they're not like sending out save the date cards, I don't think, after this. <laughs> but um, uh, but uh, there is a there's a real sweetness about that scene, even though she's been this kind of, I don't know, antic, highly charged, uh, almost crazed presence. I like you. Book. No, I don't. Yeah, I do. Do you like yeah. me? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but she also shows herself in the scene where he declares that he loves her and he wants to marry her. Like she shows that she's kind of really smart and insightful. And in fact, both of them have this kind of insight into human nature. They're talking about the captain and why he turned down the money. And there is something about the way they're talking that that I thought, you know, they could actually be a really good couple. Yeah. Well, you know, we've been t- told that Alyosha is just really embarrassed about everything to do with the opposite sex and sex in general. And I was wondering whether or not Alyosha was confusing this love for everyone with romantic love for for Lise. I couldn't quite tell if we're we're to believe that he could that he had a mature sort of romantic love for her or whether he was just responding to her affections. And also the elder told him he should get married and so here's somebody right. that like, declared right. her love for him like okay, let's do her then because and this is one of the things that I wanted to talk about from last time is universal love incompatible with loving particular people. Um, this came up in the last uh, in the last part, and you know, right now Alyosha is at a place like where he loves his brothers in a different way than maybe he loves strangers, and he certainly loves Elder Zosima in a different way than he loves strangers. But once you have this all-encompassing love, does that even allow for a kind of love for a, an individual like your wife or Lee's or, um, but right now I think he's in that transitional liminal place where he can make distinctions in terms of his love. Even if there is a pull towards the universal, there's also a pull towards particular people. The elder Zosima is sending him out, right? So under this elder system, I forget if we made this explicit last time, but you're basically it's it's an apprenticeship model, but where the the elder dictates everything, um, every part of your life. You you do whatever the elder that you're paired with says, and he tells Alyosha that he's to go out into the world. And I think there's something there where that that is intersects a little bit with what Zosima was saying about monks who are accused of of withdrawing from the world rather than actually being in it. Yeah. He says that that's not, people are missing the point when they say that about monks. But I do think that he's sending Alyosha out because that is also work that needs to be done. We need people out there um, interacting and actually loving individuals because yeah, that part <laughs> that you brought up there where there was a good quote last time and there's a good quote this time about, you know, loving people in general is very different than loving a person in particular. In this case, it was brought up as a, like it's hard to love any one person. I think Ivan says something like, if you want to love, if to love people, they need to stay hidden. 
like not show themselves. And this, yeah, and this is the challenge for Alyosha. And I think the father, Elder Zosima sees it, he's, is you can't say you love everybody without having, you know, defeated this problem, which is, can you love these terrible, ter- in many cases, terrible people? Yeah. Can you actually love them? Yeah. Right. And and does love mean anything? If you just love the birds and the leaves and all people, no matter how like wretched, as much as you love anything, like it's it, what it, what does that even mean at that point? Does love like have some side of part, like by definition is love partial um, for it to uh, be meaningful? That's something I think that's another problem that needs to be resolved in Alyosha's mind, I think. In my notes somewhere, I, I, I swear I wrote literally, like, what does love even mean here? It's used across various contexts, like love the birds and love the trees, love your brother, you know, uh, love the stranger, love people in general. These might may all be one common thing that is being done, but I'm not sure. Well, and I don't think there's an answer to that. But it is like, what does it mean to love all the trees? It certainly seems like it's something very different from loving the person who's being an asshole to you. The other thing this could be, it has sort of ties to Augustine or like Siddhartha, the Buddha, where you go out into the world and have your earthly pleasures before you withdraw from the world and have this more beatific, universal, transcendent love. Um, And maybe that's... So you could view this for maybe Zosima's... This is part of... Alyosha's progression. But if that's true, then that's, I feel bad for Elise because she's just a means (laughs) to an end at that point. She's a stepping stone for Alyosha to, and I honestly don't remember if they, you know, what happens between them. This is the nice thing about reading this sort of freshly. Yeah. Do you want to say anything uh, before he meets uh, Ivan and we can get into those parts? Is there any other, it's very funny just how every, like, after Katrina Ivanova says that she doesn't love Ivan and Ivan says she's never loved me, she, Katrina Ivanova goes into hysterics and then Lee's says she's not in hysterics. I'm in hysterics. I'm going and, and everyone is just, I mean, it would be a very funny thing to, to view if they could do this. Just Alyosha just bewildered by all these people just in this crazed states of heightened I don't know, like emotion and, yeah. And just like speaking nonstop, nonsensically. Um, Dostoevsky just does this this great job at at expressing or making the reader feel the frustration one must feel if you were trapped in that moment. And Alyosha is mostly just trying to leave at that point. He's trying to get out the door because he has stuff to do. There's one thing I wanted to say that, that, uh, that gets touched upon a bunch of times, and I think in this section uh, especially, which is there, there is oft, oftentimes Alyosha, in some cases other characters, have an intuition about something or something that's going to happen. Yeah. Or about somebody. Right. And they don't know where it comes from, yeah. but they can't shake the feeling. Yeah. And and there was um you know speaking of strain at some point Alyosha hears that word or whatever it is in Russian and says that's so weird I dr- I had a dream and I woke up saying strain strain. Um there is a lot of it it appears if Dostoevsky is pointing to a lot of unconscious stuff that's going on. Absolutely. Um, 
in in these characters. And it's just, it made me think. It's no wonder that this is a f- favorite novel of, of Freud's because it, it really does seem that like the, under the surface is where the interest interesting stuff is. Yeah, it taps into some very deep levels of human psychology and and it's been and and there's also this constant question of it maybe this is miraculous it's never explicitly miraculous but the book starts out off with madame koklakov saying that she she uh, zosima performed a miracle told this woman that when she got back she would hear news of her son uh even though she had given him up for dead after a couple of years of not hearing from him and then she did and so like where did he get that knowledge it it could be a coincidence i think dostoevsky is very purposely leaving that up in the air for us and you know what one of the reasons that's important is because if you are to be made a saint you have to have had a documented miracle performed in your life and so, so I think they're trying. It was. It wasn't clear to me whether people were bending the truth on this in order to get Zosima appointed a saint after his death. <laughs> yeah, like on a, on a technicality or something. Or uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but Zosima himself, right when he bends down and uh, um, last time to, to Dimitri. Yeah, right. Um, it's like what he had know? some intuition that he describes this time. Something bad is going to happen to him. Alyosha also expresses intuitions of like deeply mistrust, distrusting Smerdyakov, and he's not sure why. Yeah, and so and Ivan also is sort of nagged at by Smerdyakov. Right. Only later realizes why. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to talk about in this also related to I think Dostoevsky's keen understanding of psychology and and Alyosha's too is the interaction with the captain, the really poor captain who Dmitri humiliated in front of his son. And just, you know, having written that book on honor and thought a lot about honor, just the delicate balance of what is trying to be done. First of all, Alyosha trying to give the 200 rubles in a way that doesn't make the captain too ashamed to accept them. Then the boy and the, the really sad plight of this boy who desperately needs to know that his father isn't a coward and also needs him to demonstrate that publicly and is just tormented by the fact that he probably knows that his father can't do that. He can't challenge Dimitri to a duel. You know, the the way the father describes it, it's so sad. The kid is staying up at night, this small boy who's proud of his father, who loves his father, and who wants his father not to be humiliated like this. And as bad as it is internally, he's also getting attacked and teased and mocked in school by by the boys. And and just the sensitivity that Dostoevsky has to that to all of that, and that Alyosha has, and I kind of believe him that that was enough for the for the captain to trample on the two hundred rubles. He made his point. He took his stand there, and so when Alyosha goes to give it to him the next day, he'll feel like he can accept it. You know, right? It seems yeah, plausible, absolutely. at least to me, the way Alyosha was describing it. Yeah, and you get this sense that Alyosha really, really is a, a keen observer of human psychology, but he's still so young that he's making some rookie errors. And one of the rookie errors was just getting a little too enthusiastic about about giving um, the captain the money. Oh, yes, and, right, right, right. And so, at the, and he can just he knows that the captain would have accepted it at that point. But but Alyosha kept saying, yeah, and like, you could do this and this and we'll give you more money. And at that point, it, it really turned. And and I think you're right that 
in the long run, this might be better because it gave him a chance to save face. But but he could have he could have gotten him the money there. Yeah, it was a rookie mistake. That's a perfect way of describing it because he realizes where he erred, and then he also almost immediately. And then also that the, the captain himself felt a little too eager to accept at first. And if he had just not offered the more money and more, he just got caught up in like the excitement of this this captain being able to like get a horse for his and maybe even leave the town with his family uh, with his head held high. He got so excited that he went too far and the cap and made the captain too eager. And then the captain realized he couldn't. He had to turn it down right. at that point. Yeah. And and I think part of that excitement was so genuine from Alyosha because he had developed a real real sympathy for for the boy, for the family, which is obviously, you know, it's like the mother, the mother was completely disabled and this one of the sisters was as well. They have very few ways to to earn money. It's a very bad situation. And Alyosha is getting excited because he cares. Right. Right? Exactly. Like because he actually wanted the the boy to leave, be able to leave without getting mocked, um, and and I think that got him too excited. But yeah, that was totally. I, to- I was totally thinking about you during this this honor thing. You know, where the boy is saying, "When I grow up, then I'll be the one to avenge you." Because I'll challenge him, and then the boy even says, "Like, I, you don't have to kill him. You have to just show him that you could kill him, or that you stood tall." And that even comes back for Elder Zosima in his duel at the end of this idea that even if you're not going to kill somebody, you do have to stand tall and accept the possibility that you yourself could be hurt. That's really important for, uh, for your honor, both privately, but also publicly. Like that's what allows Zosima to, 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 to reach people is that he stood tall and he knew that and he even went in with that intention is I had to show them that I would take the shot and that the reason that I was doing what I was doing wasn't because I was just too afraid to be killed that's why I could forgive him or beg his forgiveness because I only because I showed publicly that I wasn't a coward and that's so honor that's right so the cowardice is one of the worst things you can be branded with in, in this culture and in many cultures and that's a good transition because one thing Ivan says at the very beginning of the conversation with Alyosha, he says, in the end, I learned to, like, I, I wasn't sure if I loved you at first or what I thought about you, but in the end, I learned to respect you. This little man stands his ground, I thought. Observe mm-hmm. that I'm speaking seriously, though I may be laughing. You do stand your ground, don't you? I love people who stand their ground, whatever they may stand upon, and even if they're such little boys as you are. Today's episode is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Hey, it's a pandemic. You're spending a lot of time in your house, probably. Why not spend some time learning about the world? The Great Courses Plus has real professors, prominent researchers who know how to teach and engage with people. I love this company. I've been a fan for a long time since way back in the cassette days, but they're not doing cassettes anymore. You can now watch their lectures on smartphone, your smart TV, your desktop. With the Great Courses Plus app, you can learn anytime, anywhere. It's that easy. One course we've been enjoying is The Great Questions of Philosophy and Physics, presented by Professor Stephen Gimbel, who holds the Distinguished Teaching Chair in the Humanities Department at Gettysburg College. 
Like Ivan Karamazov, we are Euclidean creatures, but this is not a Euclidean world. Professor Gimbel introduces us to time, matter, relativity theory, quantum entanglement, Schrodinger's cat, the dreams of a grand unification theory, as well as the controversial theories in the philosophy of science that grounds these weird and fascinating accounts of the universe. Another course relevant to this particular episode that I want to check out is Classics of Russian Literature taught by Erwin Wilde. The Russian novelists and poets, they knew what they were doing. They are better than us. This is a great introduction to their world. And I can't do one of these spots without mentioning Robert Greenberg's courses on classical music. They're so awesome. Professor Greenberg single-handedly taught me how to appreciate classical music, and I'll always be grateful for that. With its vast selection of subjects, The Great Courses Plus truly has something for everyone. So join us and sign up for The Great Courses Plus today. Right now they have a limited time offer for our listeners, an entire month for free. That's access to any and all courses for the next month completely free. What do you have to lose here? Don't wait any longer. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash wizards. That's, again, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash wizards. Thanks to The Great Courses Plus for sponsoring this episode. So Ivan had been in town for three months. These are brothers who hadn't seen each other in years since Alyosha was a little boy. And for three months, Ivan had just had not spoken to him. And Alyosha was, every, you know, every time they were together in the same room, apparently Alyosha would, would be looking at him with these eager eyes that Ivan noticed that, that clearly wanted, he wanted to talk to Ivan, but... He was maybe just too shy to, to do it. Um, and he notes, he, Ivan notes that he noticed this. And finally, they're together at this bar. He calls him up when Alyosha's looking for Dimitri and he says, all right, let's talk. Yeah. And he also says this thing that we alluded to earlier, that he only wants to live until he's 30. He, he thinks like he has enough Karamazov like life force in him. Like the father wants to live as long as possible, just banging teenagers or 22 year olds until he goes to the grave but not ivan he just wants to do this till he's 30 and yeah he thinks it's very distaste it's like in poor taste to live till you're 70 and he says (laughs) even living till he's 30 he says is against logic he says even though it's against logic i do want to live till i'm 30 which is sort of an interesting uh it's certainly going to relate to what he says in the rebellion chapter but yeah that's what it's it's kind of an interesting question why is it against logic to want to live at all and why does he just want to live until he's 30 what what is it about the year that year you know <laughs> i'm you know uh when i when i first read this i was probably early college definitely not 23 yeah. i thought of ivan as an older person like 23 was old to me and i think that him saying that he just wanted to live till he was 30 it kind of made sense <laughs> and now i'm like 30 oh my god that's so young why would you want yeah, to do it life's just i think that's started. just a, yeah i think that's just the foolishness of youth to to you know that that inability that we have to know that we will want to keep living when we're 30. <laughs> but I guess the question is, it's not that he thinks like life as a 30-year-old will be bad or worse than it is right now. He just thinks, you know, it's like you said, like that's the only tasteful time. I, 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 I see what you're saying, that when you're 23, 30 seems like you're old to a certain extent, but it's still a very bizarre 
plan. It is bizarre. He says he says he wants to, you know, like he wants to enjoy life. Um, and he's using this metaphor of drinking from the cup and at age 30, he'll smash it. And I, I understood this kind of as a, like, I want to go out in my prime, you know, I don't want to be, you know, Washington Wizards, Michael Jordan. I want to be Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan. Um, this, this ugliness of getting old. I Oh, so I don't think it's that. I think it's a moral thing. Like, I think it would be like a moral compromise in from his perspective right now to live past 30. It's already a moral compromise to live until you're 30. But once you get, once you've been able to drink f- from life for that many years, like at that point, you're complicit. If you, you're like too complicit yeah, or maybe, something. Right. If you, if right. you, if maybe you get the, Yeah. Because later as he's describing that adults are all guilty, maybe he does have a, a sort of the sense that you're more guilty the older you are just because you've been an adult for longer. Not rejecting like the, the obvious injustice of this universe. That's right. Returning your ticket. He's like, I'm going to enjoy life a little bit before I return my ticket, but not too much. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about this idea of returning your ticket or this idea of rebellion. And because this is the problem of evil described in really very emotionally resonant and in addition to just like so systematically presented. Systematically. Yeah. What I love is how he starts, how Ivan starts by saying, sort of downplaying his own intellect and saying, listen, I have a Euclidean mind. That's a just a very straightforward way of thinking. Like I know that people, there's some people who say, yeah, but like parallel lines might meet in the infinity. I admit my brain can't, I don't know what that means. You know, perhaps I'm dumb. I'm just a caveman. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just a caveman. Your world frightens and confuses me. <laughs> Your non-Euclidean geometry frightens me. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so he starts with that, like, but, but I think what he's doing is something he alludes to later that making it plain. So let's make this as plain as possible. You might think it's stupid, but it's it's a way of starting this on equal footing. Like we can all agree yeah. that this is bad. Like and, and right. then he starts right. And I loved, I loved, I remember reading this the first time around. I, I don't know why I loved it, but I loved how he was like, I collect things. Let me tell you what I collect, right? And he starts describing these newspaper accounts of children who had been, you know, horribly, horribly uh, treated. And he sidesteps adults completely. Yeah. Right. Which is a, just a brilliant move. It's like because... a philosophy paper at that point. It's like, I'm not going <laughs> to exactly. even talk. Like, I'm going to talk. I'm not going to talk about <laughs> adults. Like, I'm going to concede adults. If they suffer, they deserve it. They ate the apple. Yeah. They know sin. I'm just like, I'm not even going to focus on them. So you can have, you can have adults, which is a very like smart philosophically, but also to like emotionally it is that and this part this book is about the the sort of innocence of children and that we all sort of instinctively know yeah you're so right to point out that this is a very emotional uh appeal like a very but at the same time it's ivan is not an emotional person Mm -mm. he is an analytic person he is not one to be soft-hearted this is something that he is just just believes, and you can tell that his compassion for these children is there. But that's not the point that he's trying to make. The point that he's trying to make is that this is this is true evil and intellectually unjustifiable. 
Yeah. And yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. I, I want to, before we go away from the Euclidean, non-Euclidean geometry, there's something about that that strikes me as a key metaphor for two ways of understanding faith as well. So I think there is the the Euclidean version of faith might be like that that father who sees devils and spirits and like that's the way you have faith because you actually see the things. And then the non-Euclidean, it's like intuitively we can't grasp it. So there's, and, and rationally we can't grasp it. Even if in some sense there is a non-Euclidean geometry, it's not clear how we can, un, like we don't have the intuitions or the conceptual ability to really understand it. You know, like I think about like general relativity or something like that, like you can, or quantum mechanics to some, like you can read about it, but you can't fully understand it because we're just not wired that way. And I think when we get to Elder Zosima and that version of faith, it's a more non-Euclidean form of faith. That's interesting because I, it's not, that's not the, how I would have understood if, if this is a metaphor, I would have understood Euclidean as being a very pragmatic, practical way of looking at the world. And you kind of said that, but yeah. but, I, but to me, like the the devils uh, the, that that um, father, what's his name, is seeing, yeah, um, is not that. It's more actually they go out in the world, and I know when I see that somebody is suffering. Like you can talk to me all you want about eternity, but what I see is this life. Yes, I think that's and, right. I mean, that's certainly the way yeah. Ivan is using it as well. It's like, yeah, that you can try to talk me out of it and and tell me out, but like, look. There was this girl who her parents, for no reason, five years old, would just abuse constantly and make sit in like in an outhouse all night, um, like covered in her like shit and like not have any idea why. Hear her, hear her moans and not not be moved. Yeah. And, and, you know, so he describes these like just ever increasingly horrible scenes of both children suffering and also the cruelty of adults towards them and 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 also notes that the cruelty is kind of the point for them like that it, it, he there's this quote on page 241 it is precisely the defenseless the defenselessness of these creatures that tempts the torturers the angelic trustfulness of the child who has nowhere to turn and no one to turn to that is what inflames the vile blood of the torturer so they find like this kind of artistic delight in making this innocent trustful creature suffer and when you know that adults do that and you know that there are these children who have not eaten from the apple, they have, they're innocent, suffer it, that's like, there might be a God, but who wants that God? Like, there's no, there's no way, and certainly in a Euclidean way, to accept that, to, to want to be part of that deal. Right. It's like, you can tell me about n-dimensional space, but I live in three dimensions, and this is this this world that you created is in three dimensions. So, you can talk to me all day about non-Euclidean infinity parallel lines meeting, and but, but you still have to justify this, and it's unjustifiable. That, I, that quote that you read... Um, reminded me of the the anecdote at the and I apologize to actual Turkish people, but the, this practice that that Ivan describes of Turks who shoot babies in the face, but they yeah. wait for it to laugh gleefully first. It's the, the he says something very funny right afterwards. Artistic, isn't it? Yeah, but then he says, "Look, you might say, oh, that's the Turks. They're savages." 
but and then he gives but let's these go to hor- Russia. Let's go right. to Russia. It it doesn't get better. You know, it yeah. may get a little less savage in a certain sense, but in another sense, it's 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 almost worse. I I want to read this quote because I think it. It both gets at the sort of intellectual, but also the moral case for rejecting God that Ivan puts, I think, pretty, it's pretty compelling. He says, this is page 242. Can you understand that a small creature who cannot even comprehend what is being done to her in a vile place in the dark and cold beats herself on her strained little chest with her tiny fist and weeps with her anguished, gentle, meek tears for dear God to protect her? Can you understand such nonsense, my friend and my brother, my godly and humble novice? Can you understand why this nonsense is needed and created? Without it, they say, man could not have lived on earth, or for he would not have known good and evil. Who wants to know this damned good and evil at such a price. The whole world of knowledge is not worth the tears of that little child to dear God. So he's, he's, he's talking about, I think, one of the responses to the problem of evil, which is, you know, in order to know the good, you have to know the evil um, and to have a contrast between those two. And he's pointing out that that is, it's, it's, it's not worth it. It's too high a price. Even you reading this uh, sort of was bringing tears to my eyes. And this is one of those cases where I have read, obviously, like we both have read plenty about the problem of evil and the various, you know, the apologists. And in in this example and the sentences that follow, I feel like Dostoevsky gave me more an understanding of why I would reject this response than, yeah. than any philosophical essay would have, like a straight up philosophical essay. Yeah. This is... This is it's amazing, right? Um, it's a it, and and it, and because I think it 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 gets at like the moral and emotional and the sort of intellectual or rational heart of the problem, mm-hmm. right? Like it's not just you know a reductio ad absurdum that I can put in class, put up in class, and like seven <laughs> right. premises leading to a conclusion. It's it's like every part of you is understanding it. I think like mm-hmm. all your ways of understanding it are. A, are appealed to but not in a way that is cheating or is because these things really happen all the time more than we can possibly comprehend well that's the that's the other brilliance of of him there is maybe it's just me but there is such power to me in the way that he started telling these stories which is let me tell you i collect various things and these are newspaper stories that he's describing Right? These aren't Ursula K. Le Guin's, like, imagine there's a society and there's one baby that's being tortured. What would you do? Uh, you know, I can talk about that with in, in the abstract, and I can even justify a society like that. This, after reading this, yeah, it's just like, fuck that. Right. Fuck, fuck you for even thinking that there is an eternity worth this little girl beating on her chest, praying to dear God. Yeah. He has newspaper articles. This isn't a thought experiment. This is real. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, I think those are real newspaper articles that Dostoevsky um, had come across. Jesus. So he is, he is, and this is what I mean, like Dostoevsky, in spite of him being a believer, is making the best case against it. I, morally, I think. I mean, that's what I take the rebellion chapter to be. It is a moral as much as it is yeah. a lo- logical kind of. And and in that sense, like you said, Ivan is not an emotional person, and I think that's right. But do you think 
he might have been at a certain, like this has sort of disabused him of human feeling or maybe there's something about his lack of, like maybe like a Paul Bloom way, like his lack of of emotional arousal allows him to understand the injustice in a way that maybe other people wouldn't. I don't know. Yeah, I think that this is one of the things that, you know, people people think of, you know, like utilitarians miscalculating and, and cold and, and rational. Um, but I don't, this is a case where just even the words that Dostoevsky puts in Ivan's mouth are so emotional. Yeah, This is just something that Ivan has worked out in his head already. So he is, I think, dispassionate in making this argument, but he's dispassionate in a way, not in a way that I think he arrived at this uh, position because of a lack of emotion, but rather he felt that emotion and it was dispassionate enough to draw these conclusions from it. And even, as we'll see, create a small little novel that he memorized. <laughs> yeah, even as he's describing it, you get the sense that he feels it at some yeah. level, you know, even now. Yeah. So then Alyosha, it's, a, it's such a compelling argument that Alyosha just says it's not worth it. Uh, first of all, like he wants to kill, he, he's, he's like, shoot the general that had the, the little boy torn up by dogs in front of his mom's, like shoot him. And also, like, it's not worth the tears of that girl. Yeah. But then he says, like, you're missing out on Christ, who is supposed to redeem all of this, right? Who loves in spite of all this sin. And this is, yeah, this leads to the Grand Inquisitor chapter, which is often excerpted, which is kind of interesting that, you know, to, to read this out of context versus reading it in context. I think people probably do at least as much out of context as they do in the context of the novel. Um, before we go to the Grand Inquisitor, I think it is important to highlight that Alyosha really is agreeing here. <laughs> he does end by saying, but you're, you're not thinking of Christ. But that's a, a pretty weak argument because it's not really an argument, you know. Um, the last, I think the last thing that Ivan really asks him or like one of the one of the last things is would you agree to be the architect on such conditions and he's talking about the condition being that you have children tortured for the sake of eternity and and Alyosha's like no right. I wouldn't that's so you big know? and he's being this is great about Alyosha is that he's being intellectually honest here he is not just trying to find arguments he is and 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 not just intellectually but I think he's being honest at every level of his being, right? I think so. In, in some sense, Ivan wins this argument. He doesn't get Alyosha. You know, the one thing Alyosha does at the very end is kiss Ivan. You know, if that's yeah. a reply. But other than that, it's all it's Ivan's game here. All right, should we talk about the Grand Inquisitor? Because it's such a yes. We we've we've already been talking for so long about everything else, but we have to <laughs> we have to talk about this. So. So this is the Spanish Inquisition. Ivan has constructed this fictional story, obviously, where Jesus one day just shows up in the 1500s while the Spanish Inquisition is going on. And interestingly, everybody recognizes him as such. Like Everybody, from the moment they see him, they know that this is Jesus Christ. And he's just walking around and he's performing miracles, much like the ones that are described in the Bible. The Grand Inquisitor sees him and arrests him and you know puts Christ in, in jail and then essentially just spends this whole time telling Christ 
why he cannot allow him to be here. Yeah. And why he wants to burn him at the stake the next day for being heretical. For being, <laughs> which is I such know. a great, it's such a, it's so good. Uh, I mean, yeah, he's like, you already did the stuff that, that you did. Right. You don't do more. Like, that's heresy. This is Christianity <laughs> devouring itself, like almost literally. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty remarkable. And, but I mean, you know, philosophically, the reasons for why the Inquisitor is doing this are pretty interesting. And I think Ivan, makes is trying to make just as compelling a case for why the inquisitor is right to condemn yeah. Jesus as he was making about himself and rejecting the god ticket in in the previous chapter and it is this this idea that what Christ has said that he brought for the world is freedom to choose good and evil for themselves and he he says that human beings just aren't wired in a way where that will lead to anything but just more suffering, more injustice, and like starvation. And what they, we are wired in a way to to want rules and law and order and miracles and bread and and some sort of defined purpose for life. And if we don't have that, it's just going to be chaotic hellscape. And so what he sees his task is, is to give human beings all those things, even if it means deceiving them, even if it means making them give up their freedom and demanding obedience. Right. And the occasional inquisition. Occasional inquisition. Exactly. Um, So it is very much kind of a proto-dystopian kind of idea where, like, very much reminded me of Brave New World in what the Inquisitor is saying that he is is going to give to human beings to like remedy what Jesus was trying to give to human beings because that was right. that was a poisoned gift that and and he needs to take it away. Yeah, he says he basically tells Jesus you you don't fucked up. You know you don't fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> he uses the structure of the story of when Jesus was fasting in the wilderness uh, for 40 days and the devil comes to him at his weakest. And he tempts, he tempts Jesus three times. Yeah. And the first one is, come on, man, you're the son of God. Like, turn, turn these stones into bread, right? And Jesus says, no, he, does, he doesn't. He resists the temptation of, of taking that easy way out, even though he is, you know, 40 days without food at his weakest. The second one is, well, why don't you just throw yourself off of this building? That's the second one, right? Yeah. End your the, life. Throw yourself yeah. off of this building and angels will catch you. You're the fucking son of God. Right. Like they're not going to let you die. Angels will catch you and and you'll be fine. They'll take care of you and everybody will know that you're God. And he, Jesus refuses uh, this as well. And then finally he says, why don't you just, you're the son of God. Why don't you just rule the whole world? He shows them all of the kingdoms of the world. And he says, just rule them. Yeah. And he turns this down and you know, as Christians, like I was raised, we're, we're, this is the devil tempting Jesus who has committed to these four days of fasting. He's doing, he's playing, unfair, we're told he's, it's an unfair game. Jesus is, of course, at his weakest. Of course, all of these things are real temptations. And Jesus must resist because if he had given in to any of those, this would have meant his mission was a failure. And the Grand Inquisitor is like, those are the things that you should have done. Those are exactly the things that would have made the people you created happy. Right. But instead, you turned them down. And then the crime, I think, is that he expected 
human beings to live up to that example. But he's Jesus, and human beings yeah. are human beings, and they can't live up to that example. They will, they, they will not turn down bread. They will not turn down rule and law and order. And this is the sort of unfair position that Jesus has put humanity into is set this kind of ideal that is impossible for them as earthly creatures to, uh, to attain. Right. And, and moreover, the way in which he's doing this, which is uh, the devil's tempting him to essentially prove that he's God, mm-hmm. Christ is rejecting because that right. would be the easy way out, right? right? Just like with Job, what he wants is human beings to decide based on faith whether or not to follow him, not because they might gain some material advantage like having free bread, or whatever. So right. so he's putting humans into this situation where they must through faith overcome all of those necessities and still believe in God. He's given him he's given us this freedom right. and this freedom is is just suffering. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things I think this is is a criticism of or at least a depiction of a as what Dostoevsky sees as a more catholic understanding of how human beings can be in touch with Christ. You need this mediator you need somebody that does have authority that's of yeah. this earth and it and it and it's not just every individual's free choice they have a structure they have popes and bishops telling them what to do and granting them a confession and 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 setting up some sort of structure so yeah. that that is i think what the the jesuit you know this he's a jesuit i guess this grand inquisitor and the whole point of the church is to provide this bridge between you know sinful man and and god but jesus himself didn't offer that and and in fact rejected it and so the grand inquisitor is taking at least as dostoevsky is is portraying it taking the kind of jesuit catholic ideal to its logical conclusion which is totality you know like all freedom is taken away from them right? Um, so that they can live in a way that is tolerable for, for human beings. And if, and, 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 and like trick them into believing, you know, they can believe they're free. Like maybe they'll believe that this is, is freedom. And, and he says, you know, granted this people have to do this. So there'll be a few hundred thousand who have to suffer, um, you know, because they're the ones who are providing the structure, but the millions will be happy. And, you know, Ivan is actually, uh, as he's telling the story, he is making the Grand Inquisitor essentially say the devil was right. He's, yeah. He is saying, I, we didn't follow your path. Like, this is 1,500 years after you came here. We built this structure, but it's actually the path of Satan that we followed. And he even gives some a story in Revelation of writing the harlot who rides the beast um, and and mystery is written on her, and uh, he's 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 essentially saying that'll be us. We are what you called Satan, and he was right. And at the end of time, people will recognize that we were right. And just one thing to add to that, he says the Inquisitor says there are people who uh, have to suffer, and it's us because mm-hmm. we know that this is all in some sense a big lie. Everybody else doesn't. Everybody else has what human beings need, which is this kind of law and purpose and food and miracles, you know, fake miracles. And But we don't. 
um, because we know the truth. We know that there is none of that, that we're making it up. The hundred thousands, yeah. the, the millions will be yeah. happy except for the hundred thousand of those who govern. And so like we are in that existential place of not of uncertainty and, 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 f- and free choice, but we will suffer it. So it's almost like he's the new Jesus, like mm-hmm. suffering for humanity to, um, and, 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 you know, and also in a way that is very reminiscent of a kind of utilitarian form of, uh, especially in that time period, the kind of utilitarian utopia where. Yeah, I think, I, I think I read somewhere that Dostoevsky was like, you know, like the, he just didn't like the communism of uh, that was growing in Russia. But, but not just like in remember in Notes from Underground, there was this idea of the Crystal Palace, and that was this also this utopian ideal mm-hmm. where everything was just run according to rigid laws about what would make human beings the happiest with all the scientific yeah. knowledge we had. That I, I think this is a, a you know the kind of Catholic version of that of that same sort of I, I, idea. There, it's it's really interesting. It's just pitting this kind of radical existential freedom against suffering, right? I mean, that's what and and he is he is rejecting freedom in the favor of having some possibility of human happiness and harmony and rejecting honesty, rejecting reality in some sense. Of and it's you know, there, I, I don't know. Like I teach Brave New World, and there's this discussion between the you know one of the people who run brave new world which is very much set along the lines of what the grand inquisitor wants where there are people who have defined purposes and very rigid structure and they're well fed and they get to and there's just these people at the top that know that there is this other world of art and and love and monogamy that that only they know about the other people don't even know about so they don't suffer from lack of access to it but they do and so in some sense they are sacrificing themselves uh and i think this is part of every totalitarian sort of version of human uh happiness is there have to be people who know the truth in order for other people to be happy uh blissfully yeah, the keepers ignorant. of the secret yeah right um the, the noble lie like Plato. you know this is like plato yeah. right the noble lie in in plato's republic is the sim- similar kind of thing but there are the people the philosopher kings who know the truth ivan says um when just he, when wrapping up he says who knows maybe this accursed old man talking about the inquisitor who loves mankind so stubbornly in his own way exists even now in the form of a great host of such old men and by no means accidentally, but in concert as a secret union organized long ago for the purpose of keeping the mystery, of keeping it from unhappy and feeble mankind with the aim of making them happy. And the way that this ends is he, he actually kicks, he lets Jesus go. He lets Christ go, right? But he says, but, 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 don't, but don't come back because I will. Don't come back. back. And yeah. Christ kisses him on the lips. Doesn't, he never responds. He just kisses him on the lips. And it's unclear what that kiss means. And then Alyosha also does that to Ivan after he tells him that story. So I have like, I have an interpretation of what that means. Okay. After your interpretation, I just have a question too. Um, um, my question, if it just, I'll, t- I'll say it really quickly because it might have to do with your interpretation. I wasn't quite sure whether the rebellion and the grand inquisitor, h- how they're related. Are they supposed to be serving the same purpose or dual purpose in the sa- for the sake of a similar argument? Um, here's one way to understand it. He gives the moral case for rejecting God and the rational Mm -hmm. case for rejecting God. 
But then there is this objection that there is this kind of Christ-like response that you can make to that. And the Grand Inquisitor is saying, no, Christ is no help here. You know, he's one of the problems. Not, he's not part of the solution. He's part of the problem. So that's one maybe somewhat simplistic way of understanding how they're related. Uh, I, I think part of the reason that human beings cause so much suffering is because they have this freedom and they have this lack of authority over their own actions. If they don't know that God exists, which the, most of the Karamazov don't feel, all of the Karamazovs don't feel like they know, then what is preventing them from acting according to their most perverse desires? If they have perverse desires, which they, which all but Alyosha seem to do, or at least, <laughs> right. uh, so that is, I think, it's that freedom that the Inquisitor wants to take away because it causes all the suffering described in the rebellion chapter. Maybe that's a better way of saying how they're related. Yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, so I read it a little bit like here. I'm giving you the moral, the broad moral argument against if God exists against even wanting to follow him. And now here's my argument about why the church itself is corrupt. And there's no there's no way out of it because you could get rid of the church, but we'll just be miserable. So like we're double fucked. So like you, both your belief in God and your adherence to the church are built on these wrong, wrong ways of thinking. Yeah, although, I mean, Dostoevsky is not a Catholic or a Jesuit. Uh, he's a, I mean, he's a Russian Orthodox, which is pretty close to Catholic. Is it? Yeah. Do they? Yeah. It was just a split. There was just a split in the Catholic Church, and the, the Eastern, the Eastern have their own Pope, so they're all like. So my understanding of his faith, which is very minimal, um, I maybe like reading something uh, a little while ago for the last episode, was that he didn't like the trappings of organized uh, Christianity. And yeah. so, I mean, I believe that he's just, I think you just, if you're Christian in Russia at that time, you just were Russian Orthodox, you know, it's like, but that's, I believe that, that, that he rejected probably the structures of the church. And this is actually relates to the, the kiss in some sense, if that's true. I think that what Dostoevsky thinks the only response to this unbelievably well structured and compelling case against God, faith, maybe even living itself, is kissing the world no matter what it is. You know, kissing kissing it in all of its in all of its horrors and in all of its glory. So when he kisses that inquisitor after, you know, this kind of horrific speech that he gives, it's I still love you in spite of uh, in spite of what you've just told me, I think this is what you know. The Zosima's brother does um, once, and, and and Zosima himself in the duel. There is this point where you love without reason, and the kiss represents that loving with no real reason for love. If you're pressed as to why you love, you can't give an intellectual justification or even a moral justification, but you embrace it nevertheless. I. I would like to to buy that view, and maybe Dostoevsky even had that interpretation. But in the hands of Ivan, that kiss seems to me to not be making Elder Zosima's point or Alyosha's point 
Um, yeah. I think this, this is why it's a good story. It's so ambiguous because um, you can interpret it as just like the kiss that Judas gave to Jesus before betraying him. And that kiss right before he walks out without saying a word could be interpreted as uh, like, fuck you. You're going to hell. You're fucked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like you're, no, I fucked you. Like oh. this, this world that I gave you. Yep. Yeah. You're fucked. Right. Like, now you've, peace out. Yeah. You figured it out. <laughs> Congratulate you still have to yeah. live, you still have to live here though. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I think you're right in Ivan's hands, but when Alyosha does it, I think he is reinterpreting right. he is reinterpreting the kiss Absolutely. in that way. Um Absolutely. And may have interpreted it that way to begin with. I mean, yeah. y- you get more resistance by Alyosha in this story than than in the rebellion chapter. Yeah. But in the end, he realizes resistance isn't the way out of it. It is that kiss. Yeah, I think he reinterprets the kiss. And I, when you said he may even think Ivan meant that at some like deeper level than his conscious intention, which is definitely not to have the kiss mean that. But like, right? I mean, because Ivan then says goodbye, kiss me once more. Yeah. Right. Like so, Ivan, I think, interpreted Alyosha's kiss as perhaps giving a different interpretation of Ivan's own story that might be uh, more edifying for Ivan. Right. Yes. And I think what lends credence to that interpretation is that he doesn't end this remarkable section. He doesn't end the part there. He ends it with Elder Zosima's dying speeches compiled together. So We don't have time to talk about it, but it's interesting the way it's described that this is Alyosha's recollection and that he it's not just the dying speech, but it's all these other things. But I think the running motif in that whole section is this loving against all reason. What you said, it's an almost insane kind of love. Yeah. There is a, there, it's, a, it's a love that borders on lunacy and is sometimes expresses itself in, as lunacy. Yep, yep. And I think that Alyosha finds it sometimes hard to let himself to that lunacy, to lend himself, like to, to allow himself to go those places. Like he's described early on as not one who's prone to mysticism. Yeah. He's very realistic. Um, so he is having to learn this way of thinking about the, the world from Zosima's speeches. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a question of how mystical you have to be with this because you don't, you, you don't have to believe in anything specific, right? You just have to love and and if you can do that, like you can, be, you can be an. I think you could still be an atheist, even, you know. Yeah, but I think you're right that the. I remember what I was saying now that there is this inability to rationally justify that love, yeah. that requires you to set reason aside. And this is sort of a very like Kierkegaard was sort of like this, where he was like, you know, obviously we use reason, but when it comes down to to belief, we just take that complete. The, the leap of faith and reason has nothing to do with it. There's this, uh, the Zosima's brother, just to uh, give a, a, an example of what you just said, as he was dying, says, my dears, why do we quarrel, boast before each other, remember each other's offenses? Let's go to the garden. Let us walk and play and love and praise and kiss each other and bless our life. And then in response to that, the doctor says, he's not long for this world, your son. Uh, from sickness, he is falling into madness. Yeah. And, and 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 so like I think Dostoevsky is not he's very sincere I think about this love. It is a love. He's not being satirical or ironic about it. It is it is sincere and yet he also sincerely understands that it might be crazy. 
that it might yeah. literally be mad, a form of madness. And, and he's not going to resolve that for us. Right. The, the madness that the other father expresses at the beginning of this section, where he sees devils everywhere, is so different than Zosima's brother, where he sees love everywhere. And that sandwiches, you know, that's the, that's the, you can either see devils everywhere or you can love everything. Right. And you don't even have, and if you, if you love everything, like they talk about the comely young man that he saw, Zosimo, when he was 18 years old, who I don't think was particularly religious, but just had this instinctive love for the birds and the fish and the, the mist and the river and the, the beauty of the world and the mystery of the world. And he, he, it says, for each blade of grass, each little bug, ant, golden bee knows its way amazingly. Being without reason, they wit, they're witness to the divine mystery. They ceaselessly enact it. Yeah. And if you don't, if you're logical about it, you will end up being where Ivan is. I think maybe as yeah. well. Like you will be isolated. You will be alone. You will be incapable. Yeah. And I think Zosima is sending Alyosha out to people like that because, because in some sense, they don't know they're alone. They don't, they don't realize it. They, they need, they need somebody to show them uh, this love. You know, I had an interest, uh, a thought that while you were speaking, um, that, there is a love for life that is expressed by Zosima and his brother, uh, a real, real love for life that is very different than the lust for life that's described in the in the Karamazovs, like the the Fyodor and to some extent Dmitri, who it, who embraced life. They embrace the cup, but what they embrace it with is is base sensuality, not not that kind of higher form of love. Yeah. And the question is, why is that different or superior or better? And here's where I have, I wanted to ask, so what the Inquisitor says that human beings need is they need to obey. They need to give up their freedom in exchange for the the kind of uh, security and meaning and purpose and food that they crave. And the price of that has to be their freedom. And I think we are supposed to reject that, right? We are supposed to be on, or if you are on the religion. Uh, yeah, I wasn't, uh, yeah, I'm totally not sure what Ivan, what side Ivan was taking there. <laughs> but I don't mean Ivan thinks you're supposed to reject it. Maybe he thinks you should accept it or it's a tragic dilemma that there is no proper solution. Right. But I think from that Alyosha is supposed to reject that, right? Like if he's, yes. he's supposed to reject that there needs to be this, you know, these priests that are deceiving mankind and, and banishing Christ from the world and setting up all these noble lies to uh, make the people stupid and happy. But then what do the elders demand of their novices? It is this pledge of obedience where the elder can then tell them what to do and they have to do it. So in some sense, the elders are making the same demand that the Inquisitor is saying that human beings need, which is obedience. They need to sacrifice their freedom. Now, in one case, it's for security and purpose. In another case, it's, you know, in this case, it is for being, at least maybe having access to this great transcendent love. But it, in both cases, it seems like you give up your freedom or, do, or not. At least it seems like a tension that I, w that I was puzzled by. Absolutely. I mean, I think it is a tension. And I think that there is, when, when Dostoevsky is describing the elder system, um, and he's pretty ambivalent about it, at least he makes his characters express some 
misgivings about that whole thing. But even just being a member of a monastery is giving up your freedom. And I think that's why the important step that Elder Zosima lets Alyosha go, I think that's an important step. I think that, But he doesn't that, just let him go. He tells him to go. Yeah, he doesn't give right. him a choice, and he has to obey because that's the deal. It's like a contract. Yeah, but he's telling, you know, he's like, he's forcing him to go out and actually stop submitting to anybody, right? Like, he's like, well, he's, I took it as like a, get out of here, I never liked you anyway, like <laughs> sitcom, like way to get somebody to leave. But to, like, I, if, if what you're saying is he wants to, him to leave so that he can make his own choices and be freer, that's what I reject because he says... Obedience, fasting, and prayer are laughed at. Obedience, fasting, and prayer, yet they alone constitute the way to real and true freedom. So he is defending the monastic life there by saying that it's the only way to get to true freedom is through obedience to this rigid structure. Now, you're right that he's sending him out, but he also thinks that unless you you take the step of giving up your freedom, your, like one sense of freedom, you will be isolated. So you need to fully give that up. And, and you know, this, this reminds me of like the kind of Plato's view of, free, you know, the positive liberty and negative liberty, right? It's like true freedom, your true self is free when you're obeying. That's the kind of right. thing that bothered Isaiah Berlin about Plato and these other uh, more totalitarian visions of freedom. But then this this is what it seems like Sosima is saying, which I don't totally get because it seems like something Dostoevsky would reject. So there's some other layer of this. Yeah, I mean, I think that the dif- the distinction that may be being drawn here by Dostoevsky is that the, there is a debauched view of obedience that the church, um, in the case of the Grand Inquisitor, is doing. And that is by oppressing people and keeping them ignorant. And I think that Zosima is trying to express that your true freedom will be arrived at when you get rid of your desires, your worldly desires, and you let yourself sort of be with God and submit to God's will. And then, and only then, are you is your spirit truly free. Yeah, and you're going in with eyes wide open. Right, right. And now, I don't know that I buy that distinction, but I think Ivan would say, no, I was... That's just also what I was talking about, <laughs> right? But I think that, <laughs> but I think that maybe Alyosha and Zosima would understand this is very different than what the Gwen, Grand Inquisitor was trying to do. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a nice distinction. Uh, it is a deformed view of right. of uh, obedience that's demanded, and it's one that involves lies, and it's one that involves uh, tell, giving them certainty where there is no certainty. You know, that's right. Uh, That's right. And giving them some sort of universal uh, uh, purpose when there is no obvious universal purpose exactly. Um, But you tell them that there is. There is also like it is very mystical, I think, and or esoteric almost. There's this I don't I didn't write down the page, but I but I quoted it. That is why philosophers say it is impossible on earth <laughs> to conceive the essence of things. Sorry, I'm laughing because I literally turned to that oh, page nice. to because I had that page? that sentence underlined. It's page 320. Yeah. And it reminded me that sorry to interrupt your reading of it, but it reminded me that um Dostoevsky was a fan of Kant and he had read Kant. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. And this yeah. idea that he says God took seeds from other worlds and sowed them on this earth, raised up his garden and everything that, that could sprout sprouted, but it lives and grows only through its sense of being in touch with other mysterious worlds. If this sense is weakened or destroyed in you, that which has grown up in you dies, then you become indifferent to life and even come to hate it. So it is this sense of another world, and it's not necessarily the Christian kingdom of heaven, but it's something that can, this lingering, maybe it's like this oceanic feeling, maybe it's this, I don't know, this yeah, extra the, the intellectual. Numinal realm, yeah, yeah the, the numinal realm of Kant or, or was, forms, it could also, it's an allusion like to the forms. In any case, it's all, there is a reality that you cannot perceive. Yes. You only get like vague inklings of it being there. And that is as non-Euclidean as you can get. That is that is the opposite of what's keeping. I mean, this is what's keeping Ivan from being able to endorse something like that. Is if that's your source of joy in this life or purpose, then I just don't see it. Like I'm, I'm maybe you know, maybe your world does frighten and confuse me. Like that this that this is and, a different. And world I reject it anyway because yeah. it's too unjust and immoral. Right, because so like, like what is the numinal, what is the world of forms, what is the heavenly, you know, yeah. mysterious other, what is that doing for that little girl? Exactly. And yeah. so I think this is a conflict that is deep embedded in like life and also for Dostoevsky. And that's why I think he'd give such compelling versions of both, or if anything sort of makes the case against it at this point stronger because there is something that borders on I don't not fanaticism that's the wrong that's too pejorative but just insane about the the love that Zosima is describing it is a love that is seems disconnected from I don't know like yeah yeah and, but you're you're right that I I think that this is um this can only be written by somebody who not only has thought obviously a lot about the the, the problem but who who's actually conflicted yeah. because there is you don't get the sense that he's mocking either of these positions. Mm -mm. He writes so compellingly that I can see if you're already leaning toward one side, you might think that side won. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, right. Yeah. Yes, it's it's brilliant. All right. All right. We should. This is. I mean, uh, if if we had to do one that was long, this was the one to this do. This would be <laughs> exactly. So uh -huh. it's like two two chapters that are the most, as you said, some of the most uh, profound things written ever. In the yeah. West. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, we will. I hope like it's not a letdown. This the rest of this book. Uh, well, you know, for a murder mystery, there's no murder. <laughs> Yeah, there's not a murder. So I think we'll probably get that in the next section. If, but who knows? Uh, we're just here for the ride. Uh, we are diving in. A leap of faith. Uncertain. Embracing the uncertainty and the mystery. All right. Join us next time for this on the Very Bad Wizards Brothers Karamazov miniseries.
just a very bad wizard. All right, uh, Yoel and Paul, thank you for taking uh, two minutes to really appreciate the life of Tamler Summers. Yeah. Yoel, do you have something to say? <laughs> yeah, I was... I, I actually, uh, to be honest, I, I'm not like kissing his ass here. I had no idea he was turning 50. He looks so it, youthful. Like it must be fueled by his inner rage. <laughs> it, 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 does, it does clear the skin somewhat. I mean, he, he, is, he does seem youthful. He isn't like a kid. <laughs> uh, no, I was telling him this as we were recording today that um, he looks younger now than he did when I first met him, when he was like drinking copious amounts of bourbon and not exercising at all. Yeah. Well, it's the podcast sponsorship money going for, you know, uh, stem cell blood. It's, that's why rich people live longer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Paul is actually they, 102. They, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, was a book, it was some good book deals. I got to get a big stock of, of the blood of healthy young people. And every six months, they take away my blood and they give me new blood. It really it's very refreshing. So, uh, so... So what role would you say Tamler plays in the podcast? Is it like perfectly 50-50? Is he the straight man? Are you the straight man? Are you? I've always thought of myself as the straight man, but but um, Tamler, because he's always the one opening the podcast and sort of directing and saying, like, see you guys later, I think he's the spiritual leader. But I'm the power bottom. <laughs> I think many people view you as a longstanding guest on the podcast. Because <laughs> yeah, he maybe. introduces you and everything. Oh, you're having Pizarro again. <laughs> no, it's really nice of Tamler to keep having David back. Yeah, did you guys, did you ever talk about role assignments or did you just sort of naturally fall into that? Not at all. But for me, I was like, I was the reluctant uh, one to join. Um, but he's like clearly the, the, the driving force in terms of the, the one who is motivating me to, to, to do this. And I think that we fell into a natural groove of me responding to his outrageous things. Um, and then every once in a while, I'll say something that's outrageous and people like will be, will be, uh, you know, abhorred that I said something outrageous. I'm like, he says outrageous shit all the time. Yeah. But you're used to it. Yeah. Is it a plan dynamic between you two that he's extremely online and you have no idea what the shit he's talking about? <laughs> Not at all. I, I I mean I can't I so early on like I said I can't stand politics so like if I can avoid all of that stuff um then I will. Paul I don't remember if I was telling you this but we were talking about your podcast UL and how at first when you would come on as a guest um you were quieter uh you were sort of like I felt like sometimes I had to coax you to give your opinion mm -hmm. but now with Mickey you're just like slapping him around sometimes yeah well it's like stepping into somebody else's relationship right when you're the third <laughs> yeah. you you want to like respect those boundaries you want to know your place you don't want to just like <laughs> jump in there and take charge uh whereas with Mickey yeah he and I now we we know where we're at you know <laughs> I mean, Mickey is Mickey has the funniest way of forcefully holding zero opinions. <laughs> you like swear that he's opinionated, but you realize that he's not really. Yeah, not... yeah, 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 yeah. You know they're like Silicon Valley saying strong opinions loosely held. Yeah, he just like takes that to the logical extreme. Now, Paul, you're like the the podcast. You're like the um. You're like the center square of Hollywood squares. You like show up on everybody's stuff. Um, ha haven't you been convinced yet to have your own? 
to do your own? I don't know. It seems like I, I see it done well. It's with you guys. It just seems like a lot of work. I mean, at the technical <laughs> level, at the editing level, it's a, it's a lot of work. So I'm, I'm really happy that you guys do the work and just dropping in. Paul's an interesting type in that there's no sense in which you pull punches or don't speak your opinion, but you're so amiable when you say that. I, I have slipped sometimes. Actually, <laughs> on, on your podcast, we were talking a bit about... Um, <laughs> about a guest you had on who for the purpose of not slipping in, I won't say who it was, but, but we were making, uh, we were kind of mocking him. And then, yeah. and then um, he tweeted about it and he was listening. I felt so bad. It never occurred right. to me that anybody would listen to it. Yeah. I feel like you learn that lesson pretty quickly that if you're talking yeah. about somebody, they're probably going to be listening to you. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know if I've learned it. Yeah. Maybe not. <laughs> Paul, I've always been struck by, the way you and, you know, the one other person that I know of who does this is actually Barack Obama. Um, talking that is, the, that is, that is, that is the only time uh, in my life I have had such a nice complimentary comparison. <laughs> it's almost always Steve Bannon. So, <laughs> so this is, I, I am very, go, continue, I'm very It's, it's Bor, Boris Johnson, really. It's Boris really. Johnson. <laughs> but go on. I, I, I. The ability to talk in paragraphs such that if you transcribe what comes out of your mouth, it is a coherent set of sentences that would seem totally reasonable if somebody had sat down and typed them out. And as somebody who like, I lose track of my own sentences, like where they started by the time I get to the end, I just don't know how you do it. And I, I suspect that you kind of just script everything that you're gonna say sneakily, and then you sort of have a prompter off to the side or something. It's kind of reading it out. Um, no, thanks. I, I, you know, now I'm going to be totally inarticulate. Of course. <laughs> so, so just to make, just to make your point in, in everyday conversation, I'm not like that. I'm on my best behavior when a lot of people are listening and I try to be coherent and make sense. But, but I really am, as, as you guys know, in everyday conversation, the kind of guy who started talking and then after a little while I say, so, okay, I don't know why I'm telling you this story now or what's the point <laughs> of what but 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 this but this is this is Tamler's day. <laughs> this is Tamler's day. The, uh, I was. <laughs> this story probably has to be cut out. But I I know I told this to Paul, but I don't remember you all if I told you that the person who who commented on that subreddit when somebody asked who who's the most eloquent public intellectual <laughs> that you know. <laughs> And so there was, Tamler told me this story. He saw his name on some subreddit, at, you know, so a bunch of people are being listed. I'm sure Paul was on there. I'm sure Sam was on there. And then somebody put Tamler Summers and uh, somebody replies and says, you know, I love Tamler Summers, but putting him on the list of most eloquent public intellectuals, I just don't think fits. And the guy replies and says, no, no, I know that was the joke. <laughs> <laughs> And for, for Tamler to tell me that story was just like a little slice of the, I think the, the sweetness and the humility that doesn't, it's not obvious on, on the podcast. You know, it was a, it was a touching little moment that he was willing to tell me this terrible story about how. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so I'll, I'll end on that note of uh, Tamler. I think you're more eloquent than you get credit for. Um, at least when you write. <laughs> Happy birthday. And uh, thanks, Paul and Yoel, for, for uh, talking to me about Tamla. Hey, and then, yeah, yeah, Happy birthday. birthday. Oh, that was nice. That was nice.